The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to a special Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. It's Venice Biennale week. Pretty much the entire contemporary art world is in Venice, and so are we. Last week we heard from the artistic director of the Biennale, Ralph Rugoff, and in a moment I'll discuss the show with Jane Morris. We'll also talk about some of the national pavilions and other shows around the city. Later, we'll talk to Laure Prouveau about her work for the French Pavilion, which is creating a real buzz among the Biennale crowd. We'll look at a show focusing on climate change, and we talk to the creator of the first ever virtual reality commission for the official Biennale, Dominique Gonzalez-Fuerster. First then, to the main show, which is called May You Live in Interesting Times. Jane Morris, the former editor of the art newspaper, and now a freelance writer, join me in a room at the top of the historic Danielli Hotel to discuss Ralph Rugoff's show and much more. Jane, let's begin by talking about the Ralph Rugoff curated show, May You Live in Interesting Times. What's your impression so far? Well, I like the show very much, actually, I must say. It's divided into two parts, as we know. I think the two parts are quite different, and I enjoyed both of them. I think it's a very youthful show. It feels like a very good survey of where art is now. Um, Yeah, I enjoyed it. Should we begin by talking about the Giardini? which is the first bit that I saw. The Giardini is a, it's the Ita- old Italian pavilion. It's a 19th century neoclassical building. It's a warren of rooms and it's always been a problematic space. How do you think he's dealt with that in this show? I think he's dealt with it as well as is possible. And I think the truthful answer is everyone surely struggles with that space. Um, for people who don't know it, it, you you think that you're walking around um, a central hallway um, with a basement underneath and then a, a, a raised piece on a mezzanine. So it becomes very confusing. It starts off okay, and then it always becomes confusing once you've gone round this outer bit, seen the basement, seen the main hall, seen the upper bit, and then suddenly you're sort of lost. And I'm afraid I was lost as usual. I'm just going to say stop here. Um, and point out the fact that you might be able to hear very distantly in the background that there is an aeroplane. And amazingly, that is an artwork. That is the Ukraine pavilion, which is happening above our heads. Basically, it's a list of all the Ukraine artists in history, I think, which are, which are contained within, an, within an, uh, a pavilion, which is occupying the space of an aeroplane. But there you go. <laughs> um, my experience in the Giardini, it's, it's, it's a very, curious way of curating this but I think he's deliberately created chaos he's created these multiple artist spaces which feature up to six sometimes seven artists often of very different kinds and I think an uncharitable view of that would be that it was sort of just uh you know sort of filling the spaces but it seems to me it's a deliberate act to create visual conjunctions which are jarring do you do you think the same? Well, actually, some of those multi-artist rooms are, are, are some of my favourite rooms in the exhibition, to be honest. I mean, I think most people will prefer the Arsenale. Everyone always does. It's the more sort of spectacular. I felt, though, that the ideas in the show came across more clearly to me in the Giardini. Um, there was one room I liked particularly where um, there's a, a Nari Bagramian sculpture in the middle of the room. It's a particularly fine one. It's these great wax pieces, although they look like giant pebbles I suppose but they're actually wax and they're being held in by metal sort of retainers Um, and it's a very interesting formal piece of sculpture I would say and then round the room you've got um, an artist called Henry Taylor Um, he paints scenes about African American life juxtaposed with Julie Moretu and George Kondo Um, and for me I thought this idea that runs throughout the show of whose point of view um, Julie Moretu I understand draws although they're abstract she draws her base material from photographic images documentary images and then these become sort of blurred and disappear and then she makes these marks which look a little bit like writing Um, and that's one kind of way of telling I suppose, stories or documenting reality. And then, you know, Henry Taylor is talking about many of the same sort of issues, but is a more classical, I suppose, figurative um, painter, uh, but very much drawing from African-American 
sources. And I felt that, plus George Kondo, um, who is also looking at the idea of um, hidden figures, hidden signs in his work, again, quite strong work, I thought. I don't always like Kondo, and I feel like he's had a bit of a hard time since that documentary, um, you know, The Price of Everything. Uh, but the works look very strong here. And I found these different juxtapositions quite thought-provoking. The um the that pavilion is not just full of these multi artist rooms. There are some real standout um film works and film and video works. Let's talk about Arthur Jaffer's work. He it's called The White Album and it is a film about white supremacy. And of course Jaffer came to particular attention. He's, he's he's been working for a long time, but he came to very particular attention recently for this extraordinary, very short, but ex- uh, incredibly moving film, which is at Tate Liverpool right now called Love is the Message, the Message is Death. And this is a much longer film. And in many ways, it's it's a very troubling film. I thought it was very interesting because he... As well as the story, the, 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 the white supremacist, documenting the white supremacist material, which is truly, truly shocking. I think for those of us that are not in the United States, it, it's almost, we know these things happen, but it's almost incredible, I yeah. would say, that such things are openly published, you know, op- openly published, I guess, on social media and often on mainstream media as well. Um, but what he's done, which I found fascinating was he's also thinking about the people, I presume they're the people in his life, what, you know, white people he knows and he cares about. And that's juxtaposed between these atrocious footage and rants from these white supremacists. It's a really, really uncomfortable, but really interesting film. And I think it fits with what Ralph Rogoff talked about, that he didn't want things that were just kind of one note, that, you know, not, not obvious, simple protest. He wanted things where people talk about the complexity. And I thought the complexity of of looking at this and thinking, I mean, I'm white, obviously, um, thinking about my position as a white person watching this was was really uncomfortable, but also kind of beautiful at times. It was, it's quite a profound film, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the, one of the things about those sequences of the people that he knows, as you say, these people in his life, is that um, is that they're very beautifully shot. And that, again, the sort of texture of a personal portrait of, of a known person in comparison with an online YouTuber uh, ranting, saying, oh, I'm not racist, but, and then proceeding to say that white people have a terribly hard time, that kind of thing. You know, it, it really is standout. There's also, it, he, he complicates that even more by including a former racist who is now a sort of anti-racism campaigner who is white and uh, has been associated with white guilt by all accounts. So, so he's exploring a really, really nuanced situation of what it is to be white in America. And it is it is about American whiteness, isn't it? And also, I think what's interesting is that the, the, the now anti-racist um, campaigner, he does kind of rant and lecture in a in a, 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 a bullying way that I think, although we would agree with his message, I think the way it's delivered would make most of us feel quite uncomfortable. And this kind of constant sort of violence and anger um, is quite difficult to observe. There's a sequence in, in the film which includes the video of the song by 10 Tricks Point Never, which uh, features Iggy Pop as a kind of strange CGI avatar. Um, and it's a song called The Pure and the Damned. And actually, it includes a line, which it seems to me speaks to a lot of what uh, Ralph Rugoff is trying to do with this show, which is, it, which is that uh, it, he says, the truth is an act of love. And I think the whole fake news alternative facts thing was actually much more pronounced than I thought it would be. Because, for, in, for instance, in Khalil Joseph's films, uh, which are in both the Giardini and the Arsenale, this black news, it's, 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 it's a, a news program in which every image you see features black people. I think also, as well as the very obvious references, though, to media and the two works you've just talked about are very clearly about the media, running throughout the show, there was constantly uh, a theme of whose point of view. So some of the pieces are not saying, you know, let's just talk about the mainstream media or social media or whatever. It's talking about images and stories of people we often don't hear about, whether that's Western Rajasthani villagers who make 
masks, whether it's um, an artist like Zaneli Moholy, who is a black South African lesbian who plays very joyfully sometimes with her image. Um, and I think that's to say that's running throughout the whole show. It's, it's lots of different ways of talking about who, who's telling the story, who's the focus of the story, what kind of story are we hearing? The Osnali is, is a very different kind of space. And it's much more clear, isn't it? And I think he's done a brilliant job with the Arsenal. He's used these wooden constructions throughout, which are sort of partitioning the space, sometimes opening out more, other times getting it very enclosed. And I think it works tremendously well. Yeah, the architects have done a great job there. Um, it's always been a problem, that space. Um, for those who don't know it, it's an enormously long, I mean, really, I'm sorry, I ought to know the distance, but it's, it's I think it's 300 meters. It's, it, yeah, it feels like a mile. So it's obviously not a mile, but that's about, you know, what, a fifth of a mile. It's very, very, very long. It's an ancient space. It's a medieval corderie that then with subsequent 19th century additions. But the roof levels aren't the same. It's lower at the sides and higher in the middle. There's lots of bits of industrial furniture. I mean, empty, it looks absolutely brilliant. It's extremely difficult for anyone to install. I think one of the installations that most of us remember was Massimiliano Gioni's, I think, 2013 exhibition, which had an incredibly expensive white cube installation. This, I thought, was a really good halfway house because I believe that cost a huge amount of money. And I think, although it was great, there is a limit to how much you're ever going to turn the Arsenal into a white cube. Um, these kind of plywood divisions and transparent sort of uh, cloths and things have made the sense of it being a bit more like a gallery, but without going too far. And I thought that worked very well. And I think the idea has been to give the artists as much as possible, their own sort of individual spaces. So you get to see a reasonable display of the artist's work. And I think that was very successful. How do you think the idea of the artist showing different works in different spaces works? I think that's great, but I think that we've seen it the wrong way around. We've done the traditional thing, which is to go to the Giardini first and the Arsenale second. Now, he does say that it is Proposition A and Proposition B, and Proposition A is the Arsenale. And I think a lot of people would find the the Giardini, which I think is the more cerebral and less obviously aesthetically pleasing, although, as I say, for me, had some of my favourite things in it. I think it would be much better to see that second. Um, I really like the idea. I like it for two reasons. One, I mean, Adam Chimchik did this with Documenta. And I was fascinated how having seen artists in Athens, most of whom I didn't know, um, and then seeing them again in Castle, it is interesting how familiarity makes you a little bit more comfortable and a bit more open to somebody's work. And that happens here. But I also think, I think he wants to show that artists themselves are often pigeonholed. And they often are. I mean, we've talked before about Tauber Auerbach, who is basically known for one series of work, and that's it. And that's the kind of crumpled fabric drawings. And, you know, she makes other kinds of work. I found it fascinating here to see artists showing work, or us or us being, uh, being seeing work by artists that we don't normally see. So I didn't know that Christian Markley does these great big sort of screen prints. I didn't know that Ed Atkins does drawings he's known for you know cgi video work so i really enjoyed that yeah ed, ed atkins a real is a real standout isn't he because the, the character of the work in the giardini versus the arsenale is really quite striking i mean i actually love the piece in the arsenale i'll explain a little bit about it it's deeply complex it includes these texts which are sort of etched into wood which were written by a, a contemporary art website um it contains several different screens which featured images of people crying and being inarticulate, unable to, and we have no idea why they're crying, we don't know what we're seeing, and then we have these sandwiches being created, this this film, which is just a series of CGI sandwiches, which is like uh, lettuce, tomato, and babies, or books, or pairs of jeans, so this kind of weird, and it's called old food, and this it's, it's a really strange installation, but really marvellous, and then you've got these drawings of self-portraits as t tarantulas in, in the Giardini, he's, a, he's an extraordinary artist, I think, Ed Atkins. I feel there's a kind of magical theme running through the whole thing, and I thought how interesting it was that the National Pavilion's 
do what they do. They do them and, you know, they choose what they do. They, they, in the old days, they were supposed to, I think, in some way reference what the director was doing, but that, you know, that went out with the dodo. I'm not sure they even ever tried. But I thought how interesting that some of the things that were in Laura, Laura Prouvé's film, that some of that sense of magic and mystery and almost celebration, even when we're looking at quite dark subjects, does run through this show as well, I think. And I think the Ed Atkins has some of that. The Arsenali, inevitably, it has a lot of the bigger works by artists like Ed Atkins, for instance. Um, also Carrie Upson, a work by her, big installation video and sculpture by her. Well, it's kind of a mad doll's house, isn't it? It's a gigantic doll's house. It is actually based on, I think, a doll's house that her mother had and maybe her mother's friend or an auntie. And of course, scaled up with this scary under, under the house. You know, if you ever saw, um, uh, LA Confidential, and you know the bit where they find the body under the kind of clapboard house. Well, there's some sort of detritus underneath this clapboard house of a nature you probably don't. It's domestic stuff, but there's there's definitely a really claustrophobic, rather creepy, fairy taley kind of feel to this. And that was referring back to what I was saying about the Ed Atkins as well, because there's all these Baroque opera costumes hanging up in the middle of all that yeah. yes indeed yes as well as the films and and the and the and the etched text yeah that's right yeah and again not what we associate with him you know normally it's very clean isn't it very sort of very cgi it's usually he is the central character and it's very stripped and pared down um yeah so sorry carrie upson um is one of the big works and i think one of the standout pieces definitely and i, I one of the things about this this sort of artists showing two elements of their work is that it, it really made me think about making and thinking and about the you know how artists as you say we're not going to pigeonhole the artists it, we're seeing two different types of work and some artists are obviously more consistent in their language others are able to leap between different disciplines and different media very fluently yeah I mean one of the things I like the most I mean I love Carol Bove sculptures and she, she actually didn't do anything terribly different in both places she's one of the few people whose work's consistent but she really made me think about the issue of making. I, I was very, t they're basically these tubular sculptures, but instead of being like Caro or Tony Smith or which they do reference, I think they're all kind of crumpled and sagging and the surface is all the surface is rough. It's rough iron, but it's been coated with this kind of paint and some sort of polymer, polyurethane, maybe I'm not sure, but it gives it this incredibly matte slightly textured finish so it looks more like velvet they look more like soft sculptures and not these great heavy pieces which in fact is what they are I was saying that really because I was thinking about what you said about making I think there's a real love of making and technique running through this show um, I felt that Ralph Rugoff has selected a lot of artists who do very interesting things with materials and form so as a result it's quite an aesthetically it's not, I wouldn't say attractive. There are some attractive bits, but it's an aesthetically interesting show. And I thought that was interesting because some of the themes it touches on are similar to the documentary of 2017. Some are not. Some of the themes are very similar. And yet this show is, I would say, a much more um, enjoyable aesthetic experience because of that. Should we talk about some of the pavilions and works outside of the main exhibition? Um, one of the biggest buzzes is around Law Prouveau, and we've got an interview with Law coming up, so we shouldn't probably give too much away. But it seems to me that this is absolutely the best work she's made. Yes. And initially, it's funny, when I first go, you, the, the French pavilion now looks completely different. There is a, it's all closed up. There are great clouds of water vapour coming out of the front. Should be said, there is also clouds of water vapour coming out of the front of the central pavilion. So it's a little bit of a trend. Um, so uh, that's all covered up. And you now go in through a sort of side underground, you slither down some mud in foliage. Uh, and sometimes there are performers playing things in, in the bushes. And for a moment, I thought, oh, is this kind of going to be a rerun of Anna Imhoff? You know, you enter from a strange perspective, you've got uh, performers and so forth. And there are some similarities in, in the, just in those. But once you enter, it's an entirely different experience. The central piece, of course, is this great big film. And the film is an odyssey of a kind of motley troupe of characters who are travelling from the banlieue of Paris through to Venice. But most of it's a coastal journey, isn't it? You know, they get to Marseille, they're climbing over rocks, they're, they, they, they're crossing water. 
And it's a sort of magical journey, sometimes very moving, because sometimes they appear to be singing to the to the spirits of drowned refugees. But it is not the kind of hammering the point home that we've come to see from some artists. It, I mean, for me, as a result, it's much more moving because sometimes it feels quite celebratory and sometimes they feel like they're these kind of elfin, otherworldly creatures. And then sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're kind of hip hop artists. And, you know, it's it's a really great piece, I think. Another pavilion that you have liked very much is about as contrasting as you can get in terms of pavilions. It's, it's, it's Martin Perrier's US pavilion. I think this really goes down to my love of making and form. Um, Martin Perrier, has, he's called it, uh, he's called it Liberty. He's a very, very well-known African-American sculptor in America. He's not like some of the people who are now being rediscovered. He's been, I think, celebrated for the last 30 or 40 years with major American shows. Very much less seen in Europe and the UK. Parasol Unit did a show, I think, in 2017. He makes these beautiful forms out of traditional, you know, traditional classical sculptural materials, whether it's bronze or wood. The wooden pieces are so smooth and so curved. I mean, you look at them and you just think, how did he do it? When he was studying, minimalism was very much to the fore. And I think initially he was indeed interested in minimalism and then pretty much turned his back on it. This might surprise some people if you get to see it or if you get to see the pictures online, because they do have a a minimal discipline, I think. But they do refer to things in the wider world. So they do talk about slavery. They talk about civil war. They talk about his love of traditional African crafts. They're quite layered and nuanced works, but they're very formally strict and very beautiful, I think, in a way that we rarely see um, in Venice at the moment. Before we come on to talk about the work in the exhibitions in the wider part of Venice, Let's do a typically art newspapery businessy uh, beneath the surfacey uh, approach to those shows. There are a lot of gallery sponsored exhibitions in Venice, aren't there? There's a lot of gallery sponsored exhibitions. The the galleries have also, although it's not particularly acknowledged anywhere, I mean it probably is in the back of the catalogue or something, but not on the labels or anything. Um, there's a lot of sponsorship of the works in the exhibition too, because the, the central director show is notoriously underfunded. Um, and so it relies to a large extent on sponsorship and particularly galleries supporting the artists. And then on top of that, there is just a remarkable number, I think, this year of exhibitions quite openly sponsored um, by dealers. So Gagosian Gallery is sponsoring the Baslets at the Academia. Um, I noticed when we actually went into the press view that it was Gagosian press packs um, rather than Academia ones. Um, uh, Blaine Southern are sponsoring the Sean Scully show. Uh, Tornabuoni are sponsoring the Buri exhibition, which is a non-selling exhibition. Tadeus Ropak are sponsoring the Adrian Ganey show at the Palazzo Chini on Dorsodoro. Uh, Gagosian are sponsoring the Helen Frankenthaler show. I believe Gallery Hyundai are sponsoring an exhibition. I just think it's very, very noticeable. I think it's also very noticeable that, that I don't think there's ever been so many extra exhibitions as there are this time so as well as the director's show which we've described I mean it's huge the director's Mm. show is huge let's be honest I don't know how long you've spent in it but I think I've spent six or seven hours in it and I haven't seen it all uh yet um I haven't seen the very far end of the arsenale and other things like some of the videos I definitely need to go back and sit with longer you can argue about the number of pavilions. There's officially 90, but then there are two or three more like Wales and Scotland, which I think are national pavilions, but which are officially official collaterals. And then on top of this, there are over 100, I think 104, 105 other exhibitions. And some of them are enormous. I mean, the Brooklyn Rail are putting on one that I think has got 73 artists in it. So there is more art than you could possibly see, I think, in a month. Now, um, it's not a new thing that the art is selling in Venice, is it? No, until 68, there was a sales office. And I think 10% of the work sold, sorry, 10% of the sale price actually went to fund the Biennale. It stopped because of the kind of wave of anti-capitalist protests in 68. 
with hindsight, it's hard not to think that that was perhaps a bad thing, because although people who like to pretend that it's all totally pure and it's got nothing to do with money and representation, it absolutely does. But at least that was completely transparent and the Biennale got a good source of funding, whereas now it's all going on sort of somewhat behind the scenes, covertly, secretly or whatever phrase you want to use. <laughs> so lastly, do you just want to tell us about a couple of collateral events that you've seen that, that you would recommend people seek out if they come to Venice? Yeah, people won't have a lot of time. So I think there are two shows I would definitely try and make time for. One is the um, Luke Toyman's um, at the Palazzo Grassi. It's part of the Pino collection. Pino, of course, is the owner of Christie's, a big collector and a big luxury goods mogul. But it's a fantastic show. Um, so that's absolutely worth a look at. Even if you like No Toyman's well, I think it's rare to see such a beautifully installed show. He had quite a lot to do with the installation, I believe. And I think it's a really, yeah, it's, it's a fantastic show. And the other one is a, is a rare opportunity for us in Europe, particularly those of us who are in London, which is to see a major exhibition of Bury. Um, that's at the Cini Foundation. It's on um, San Giorgio Maggiore. Most of the work has come from the Bury Foundation, so it very rarely travels. It's a great chance to see a, a comprehensive survey. Now, it's not enormous. I think there's, there's a number of large rooms, but it's a chronological uh, survey from the very early tar paintings, the famous Saki paintings, and finishing with the cello texts. Again, we tend not to see those, so I would highly recommend that one. Jane, thank you so much. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Now, at every Biennale, there's one pavilion that becomes the cause celeb of the art-loving masses. And this year, that pavilion is the French Pavilion by Laure Prouveau. Deep Sea Blue Surrounding You, as it's called, is a rich, sensorially immersive experience featuring film, sound, sculpture and a resin floor like the surface of a Venetian canal. It also includes the beginnings of a tunnel to the British Pavilion. I met Prouveau outside the pavilion to discuss her work. So I'm now standing outside the French Pavilion with Laure Prouveau. And uh, Laure, congratulations on an extraordinary pavilion. Tell me about this idea of the pavilion almost being like the body of an octopus. Yeah, um, this was a, a starting point in terms of making the films, but as well as a, as a starting point for the installation. It was I wanted the, the film to be the central part, but like the, the body, the the empty body almost. You know, the the brain of an octopus are in its uh, tentacles. So it's so the, the the film is is kind of emptiness, and then the characters in it are the tentacles. You know, and they they touch the world and they feel the world as they. Have it touch it? You know, as the octopus has all its brain in its uh, in its tentacles, it's it's direct, it's pure emotion and brain and and sharpness together. And I, I think this is something I'm really envious, almost. Or you know, I think, oh, is there something we could take from that? The only problem is the octopus doesn't have a memory, so it's super smart and bright, but it can't store it. No storage. So it has its uh, its problem as well, but it's it's. It's very direct, so I think that was that was the, the starting point. But then it was also for the for the pavilion. I wanted the main central room to be this where the film exists, and then the side rooms are are the residues of the films. They 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 stuck in between the layers of either the canals or or the or the tentacles themselves, and it's whatever's left around them that exists there on the side. So, yeah. It's really striking that you come in, you've really subverted the idea of entering the pavilion through a, through a normal entrance, mm. going in through the front. You have to walk around the back and going through the back, and it's sort of a darkened mm. room. Mm. Tell me about the idea of, of, of changing the orientation of the yeah, pavilion. I mean, I, I wanted to, to make us not enter through the grand entrance, also like many people, many people who enter or nations don't enter through the grand door and, and la, la grande porte, and and I and also how getting through the back sides you discover a lot of things that you don't see when you go from the front so it's it's all the hidden little passage you go through trees and climb a bit your way through and then you're you're in the basement of the building so you start from from its foundation you know you're not floating above foundation you're in in the building kind of and you you've so we've you've dug your way there as well and then we we started digging a tunnel there did you see it yeah there's a tunnel towards the british pavilion because we want to stay connected even if brexit happened we're there you know we're holding on we 
we gotta we gotta get here slowly but the british have to help us a minute to to dig a bit from their side so <laughs> we we gotta i'm i'm not far every night i've been digging and i'm almost halfway so we we gonna we're gonna make it but it's uh it's all about connection and trying to to link each other and uh, could uh, and of course, I don't want it. It's not literal. I don't want to be that uh, pavilion to be so blunt. Or uh, it, it's of course, if sometimes it does words don't work for it. Or so it's also objects which are lost and floating in in resin and being unable to articulate themselves and things like that. But it feels re- it feels very sensual. Um, you were talking about this idea of the octopus and its tentacles. Mm. One feels all the way through it that one's senses are being challenged, and mm. the, the whole sensorial experience of the work is mm. is very profound. Mm. Um, and, and you want to use all sorts of senses as well, don't you? I mean, the, the, you know, the sound. The, of course, the sound is very mm. mixed, yeah. but also there's lots of texture in there. Can you tell me about the kind of different materials you were using in the sculptures uh, and things? We used a lot of glass because I've worked with a, a place in uh, called Berengo in Murano who I like the idea that liquidity is getting hard yeah I mean it's uh, it's this it's this and uh, uh, we've got glass we've got tapestry that my grandma's made because my grandma's been helping me for years to make tapestry and she's uh, so I'll tell I told her about journey what we did and from from drawings and pictures to start making a big tapestry and and we found it then floating in the lagoon, so we pulled it out and, and exhibited it. And I think no one cared for it, so I had to, to, to take it out and save it from being uh, all together forgotten. And uh, there's that. There's also a fountain with, um, with uh, fishes which are uh, throwing water out of their mouth. They're moving really fast, you know, doing zigzag, like the world's gone a bit wrong, everything. <laughs> they've eaten too much of our shit we put in there i don't know in the in the water so So, um and and also there's this um the 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 lights that come on and burn bright and then sink down again so you're constantly challenging the vision of the of the viewer you're changing their Mm. environment the whole time yeah it's it's been a lot of work with around light it's true i um I think it's, it's it's just like the idea that the piece can exist in so many ways, and also that the the work is breathing you, or the the and it it keeps changing. It's either floating in the canals, or it's uh, or it's uh, it's lit in just a little corner, so you focus on that, don't see the whole picture, and you. And sometimes when you arrive in a country, myself, when I moved to England, or I only understood little corners of the society because I was there just understanding half of it or quarter or not ever or misunderstanding the whole thing. But you can, I think it's sometimes it's through the details that you, you get a bigger, you focus on part because it's kind of dense. So I also sometimes want to, to focus the attention. So tell me about the places in, involved in the in this journey because there's the the, the extraordinary city created by the facteur Cheval, yeah, for instance. Yeah. Um, what what made you choose the particular um, places? Um, Nanterre was very much starting from Paris because that's where the invitation came from. You know, it's the it's central France. I mean, it's centralized countries like a lot of us in England, in London. I mean, it's very centralized. And, uh, and, uh, and it was about going on a trip. So we met in Nanterre. Uh, and then we went all the way towards um, Roubaix first, where I came from, uh, which is a, a, city, an in, a city that had a very big industry in textiles. Uh, and I came from a bit of that history. So I was looking back at, at the collapse a bit of a... Of a of uh, an industry as well and how things change in time and how demands change and move and uh, so it's uh, it was that and then we went to Palais Ideal Factor Cheval and I always wanted to do something there just because the place is just incredible it's uh, it's this pureness of creation you know the guy collected stones daily daily from he was a postman so delivering letter and then carried making his ideal palace and I think for me there's something so pure about creating with not not so much about recognition or having exhibition or selling it's just purely wanting to invent and I I admire that I like that I think and that's why I started doing art for me it's just the, the pleasure of questioning and inventing things and so, so that's how it started, uh, and then I, we we went towards Marseille, which is really the south of France, and connected to the Mediterranean, a much wider world, looking at 
all these nations that are touching each other through, through water, but also, of course, uh, the sadness of immigration and problems and the terrible uh, things that happen there as well. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a mixture of also the joy of the sun, the water, but at the same time also think, feeling the or privileged nations or different, I mean, I don't know if it's privileged, but different kind of realities that are there meeting. And, and it's also the sea that leads you to Venice. I mean, it's also the sea that connects you to, to here. So it was the start of, uh, some of us would swim here, some would fly here, some would go by boat, some would gallop through the Alps, uh, some take elephant like Hannibal, and, you know, how do we get to Venice? And, and we arrive here, and then it's, it's almost, that's it, almost, you know. The voyage, the trip was the show. The trip was the, uh, the, 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 the arrival, and I think I quite like that. You know, the trip is not just, uh, the, it's not one finished thing, it's one thing. So the trip was the arrival, and we, uh, and there here we start hanging around. What should we do? They're all coming. Why do we show them? You know, <laughs> we've been on a trip. <gasps> They're coming. What's happening? Oh my God, we got to say hello we got to look at us and who are we what do we what do we do so that was the moment of uh, playing around in the pavilion and, and not showing anything almost you know uh, just a few reminiscences of a trip or a few things uh, and of course we worked a lot at talking about this what is there to show what do we have to exhibit or you know uh, so yeah and here we are and then you we, we have our a big jump when we when you can climb up on the on top of the pavilion and fly like a bird and belong to no nations. Laura, <laughs> thank you yeah. so much for talking to All me. All right, Thanks. thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. We'll be back and talking about climate change after this. Of all the creative light snuffed out during the AIDS epidemic in New York in the 1980s and 1990s, that of Keith Haring was among the brightest. From the very early days of the crisis, he used his creative energies and growing reputation to highlight the escalating health challenges and the indifference and ignorance of the Reagan administration. His untitled, monumental three-metre square work from 1983, which comes to Bonham's post-war and contemporary art sale in New York on the 15th of May, is a testament to the power of art to achieve social and political change. As Bonham's head of post-war and contemporary art in America, Maus Snyders explains, the work explodes with colour, but underneath the unabashed vibrancy lies a strong and enduring message about the universal fear of mortality. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Now, at the far western end of Venice, deep into the Sestiero Canareggio, is a small church, the Santa Maria delle Penitenti, which this week has been occupied by the work of 73 artists. They're part of a show called Artists Need to Create on the same scale that society has the capacity to destroy, which looks at a subject that threatens Venice's very existence, climate change. The show is organised by the New York-based journal The Brooklyn Rail and co-curated by Fong Bui and Francesca Pietropaolo. It's named after the artist Lauren Bond's neon sculpture that hangs in a courtyard at the heart of the space. In a moment, Lauren Bond will talk about that and her other works for the show and discuss how she used a hole in the church's floor as the inspiration for the work. But first, another artist in the exhibition is Justin Bryce Garilia. He too is showing a neon work called Extinction, and he's one of the most powerful voices in the art community tackling the subject of climate change and the Anthropocene, the geological era which marks the profound effect of humans on the environment. I met Justin in the Giardini at the heart of the Biennale. So I'm now standing in the uh, Biennale's Giardini area with Justin Bryce Garilia, and we're going to talk about his contribution to this show about climate change. Justin, you've made a hell of a lot of work about this subject and about the Anthropocene. Tell me about why you have such a powerful conviction in this, in this subject. You know, I, I think responding to the ecological crisis is probably the moral imperative of our time. So I think it's, it's something that it's just, it has to be done, it has to be addressed there's no way to escape the issues that we're, we're seeing and um, that are playing out around the world. And in, in terms of this show, it's a very simple, succinct work that you're presenting. Tell us more about it. Yeah, well, you know, the connection of fossil fuels to the ecological crisis, to climate change, global warming, uh, is, is very direct 
Um, one day I was in the studio and I was starting to play around with this Exxon logo, and I realized, oh, Exxon, if you just spread the letters out, you can make actually spells out extinction. Um, so I started playing with that, and then ended up creating a neon a neon work that uh, it's it's very direct. Obviously, it's very blunt, but at the same time, you know, these issues need to be um, they need to be quite direct. I'm trying to broadly raise the public consciousness on these issues and so the work has to be very accessible it has to be something that's very direct very easy to get you don't have to have an art history degree to understand what it is that that's that's that you're seeing experiencing so that's kind of where this where this project came out of um, in, in London recently, you presented a work called Reduce Speed Now, and one of it, it consisted of a series of signs like motorway signs with urgent messages, with poetry, with messages from Greta Thunberg, for instance. One of those signs had a list of species that were becoming extinct, and this seems to me extraordinary timing given that we've just had a UN report about the human effect on wildlife. Were you conscious of that report coming out, or was it's just a it's just something you're concerned about anyway? You know what what, what is art about? You know, what, art is about challenging our moral, uh, you know, our moral assumptions, right? Our ethical assumptions, and so when we talk about you know human the human connection to climate change, you know, we have to look at uh, what are our impacts, right? And at the end of the day, our impacts all boil down to one thing. And I learned this talking to Timothy Morton, the philosopher. Tim and I have had these conversations for the last couple of years. And it, it all boils down to one thing. It all boils down to this notion of extinction, whether we go extinct or the, all the species around us go extinct. So this has been in the back of my mind for a long time. Um, and it, this is something I've been thinking about for a while. And then the UN report, I learned about it coming out last week, you know, about a just a, a few days before it came out. Um, so the timing was un, rather uncanny. Um, and as you know, the report says that there are about a million species that are, uh, that are essentially on track to go extinct over the next several decades because of our impacts, right? So this is like, this is insane. This, is a, this, number, this number is just mind-boggling. Um, so the timing just happened to be very good. Um, but at the core, the core of all the work I'm, I've been making for, you know, for over a decade now, has been uh, has been addressing these, these these issues. So, there's a really interesting shift that you made in your career, which I think speaks to the power of art, and that's that you were a, essentially a reportage photographer, right? And you made this shift in, into art. Can you explain why? Because in a way, it seems counterintuitive. Well, I, I love photography. You know, it's this very direct. Uh, medium, but I found that a lot of the ideas that I was um, starting to to to, to have and, and, and opinions I was starting to have from all my travels and and the things I was learning out in in out in the field, right? Because all my work really is a product of my research in the field, um, and I started realizing, wow, you know, a lot of these things that I want to express, I couldn't express through a photograph. They had to be more. They had to be more nuanced. There had to be more complexity to them, and that's when I realized I needed to start playing with materials and processes and scale and things like that, which didn't really exist. You know, we couldn't really do in photography. So that's how I started ending up doing all these other projects that dealt with, you know, now neon signs, but the highway signs that you know from Somerset House that we just did, uh, which started about a year ago uh, back in the states, and then. Um, making large-scale paintings and all these other things. So it's really about trying to figure out a more complex, um, a, a more complex uh, language to express uh, this very, very complex issue. The Anthropocene is a very, very complex thing, and it cannot just uh, photograph. It can't just tell the story, unfortunately. It's interesting is because we're in Venice at the moment, and, and actually there are hundreds and hundreds of exhibitions and works of art here. And yet, uh, Venice is absolutely at the front line of climate change. With the rise of sea level, Venice will be underwater soon. And I'm not sure it feels like there's much art which seems to be conveying this urgent message in this place. It seems almost dreamlike. You know, I haven't been around to see the... I just arrived, so I haven't seen any of the the other work yet. Um, When we did check into the... uh, When I checked into my, my room... 
the host said to me, by the way, if the water comes up into the apartment, call me so we can find another apartment for you. And then I saw seaweed right outside my doorstep yesterday. And I was like, okay, we're really, we're really fucked. Um, and so and I'm part, I'm actually a, a quarter Venetian. So for me, this is like a personal, a little bit of a personal thing. Um, but this is a major, major issue here. Uh, and this is one of the ground zeros for climate change. Um, Venice is not only sinking, but the sea level is rising. And so it's kind of a double whammy uh, for, for the locals here. But I think art really needs to um, needs to step up and address these things. We, we're in a very, very critical uh, zone right now when we talk not only about species, but our own human, the human species and, and, and the impacts that we are going to suffer. Um, and so I think it's, it's absolutely urgent to be addressing these issues and for artists to engage with these issues because we're, we're like the last resort. We're like the, you know, there's no religion anymore. It's like, it's art. It's, it, art needs to be the uh, medium that conveys to society you know, and help the, help society understand uh, their role in, in the world. And um, so, I mean, artists really need to step up to this uh, and address this issue. Justin, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you, Ben. Lauren, we're in this extraordinary atmospheric church in the westernmost quarter of Canareggio. Can you tell us about this amazing church and what sort of inspiration it was for your project? When I came into this church, I found this incredible reveal of the lagoon within the small chapel, the Capella de Santa Ana. Uh, The people showing me the church were uncertain with if I should see it because they explained to me that this being on the far western corner of the island, it doesn't receive as much attention and um, there wasn't perhaps the funding to fix the hole and I said that's wonderful because the hole itself is the generative aspect of what I think we could do here when we talk about environmentally sensitive or reactive art one of the um, questions we have as artists is where do we position ourselves as a a voice of the poetics or as practitioners of the solution and what is our role as storytellers and translators of the moment in time we're all making art into uh, the future narrative of our collective commons and in the case of the Mediterranean that is both the sea and all of the stories that become the culture that we make um, if we ascribe to the history of art in the West. And and it really is a hole in the ground, and it fills with water at high tide, doesn't it? And you've used that as part of one of your works. Yes. Inverted Mediterranean pine um, takes the concept of water and life and regeneration, then that story that's embedded in the church itself, and rewrites it for the church as a found ruin of itself, where the reveal in the floor creates the context for the renewal of a fallen pine tree. So all through the Mediterranean, the stone pine or the Mediterranean pine is ubiquitous. But because it is ubiquitous, it begs the question of whether or not it's nature. And in fact, the stone pine was put there by the Roman Empire. It doesn't come from the European Mediterranean. It's not a tree that grows everywhere but because of its properties of being able to stabilize itself on rock and stone. Uh, it has done over 2,000 years very well until now. So whatever is changing in the atmospheric soup that creates the context for its well-being, whatever is changing as the result of the melting ice caps and the rising sea, how that solution of water that becomes the water for its body um, connects to the moisture it grabs from the atmospheric commons and the air um, has created a new context which doesn't appear to be favorable for the survival of the species. So to 
bring an inverted Mediterranean pine into a church that has a hole in the ground and to position the sculptural space so that the arbor sits over the crevice and begins to bloom again um, as the metaphor for redemption that we find in church iconography um, is what the work Inverted Mediterranean Pine speaks to, as well as using representational form um, to talk about the history of church art and architecture as being a place to tell stories um, rather than perhaps work in a completely abstract vein. It seems to me absolutely vital that the Venice Biennale should acknowledge the climate crisis, and yet... Actually, there aren't an, an enormous number of shows here that are reflecting it. Was your idea with this show to, to really convey the urgency of the situation? Was it a response to the fact that there's a lot of conspicuous consumption, for instance, at the Venice Biennale? Mm-hmm. There's a lot, of, a lot of things that are going on in this choice that Fong and Francesca uh, have made in curating and realising this. One is language. You know, to really put into the context of the Venice Biennale the question of scale at the oldest and largest um, art event that carries a kind of magic just by its name. We felt that it was really important to bring up through language, this is a very long name for a show, artists need to create on the same scale that society has the capacity to destroy The question is, what do we mean when we talk about scale? As um, Greta Thunberg said so eloquently about Notre Dame, she really hopes the foundations are strong because people will rebuild it. Can we think about the foundations of ecological being and the meaning of peril at this moment of ecological disaster as another kind of foundation that culture Um, might consider playing a strong role in. Um, And our decision to work with the opposite side of the island uh, to the Giardini and the Arsenale is that to get here you actually might traverse the lagoon and come straight around it. And in that way of departing, you kind of re-register your thinking. And that is part of what people do with churches. They take these pilgrimages someplace to detach from the daily into um, the sublime. And I think that's the position that the curators have taken in this iteration of the mission statement of my studio um, is that that statement can be interpreted in different places differently Um, But the statement remains the same. It's asking us as cultural makers to consider um, the context. Like, how big is here? How big is the place of our engagement? So in our case, we wanted to frame the commons of our stories in the Mediterranean. But I'm working in Los Angeles with the watershed of the greater West with the same thinking. Like, do we live in Los Angeles if we're bringing water from the Rocky Mountains and the Sierra Nevada, or are we part of a new construction or a new way of thinking where mapping itself maybe needs to be organized around the boundaries of the watersheds that feed us as our shared commons rather than the watershed come to the urban like land mass that it's been expected to protect. So these kinds of questions about site specificity um, here in Venice are rooted in Mare Nostrum, or Our Sea. And we're playing with that term because the Romans called it Mare Nostrum, but we believe they meant it in a colonizer kind of way. Like, this is ours. (laughs) We're going to take care of it. Um, and we're going to use it for trade and for conquest and for food. And so we're coming back around to say, well, this is our seat. It's our collective um, relationship to it as this incredibly magical 
pearl of the world. I believe it even has UNESCO site um, standing um, as a, a cultural heritage spot, the entire sea. And to ask ourselves when we're on it, especially as tourists, are we giving back to the sea what, what we can, whether it's a moment of consciousness or an exhibition framed around it, um, those little gestures of conscious connection are the beginning of changing our thinking to scale. Lauren, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. And finally this week, the first official virtual reality or VR commission for the Biennale is among the works in Ralph Rugoff's exhibition. It's by the French artist Dominique gonzalez Furster, who's long explored futuristic space and imagery in literature and film in her hugely varied works. The VR work is called Endodrome, and I met with gonzalez Furster to discuss it. Dominique, is this your first VR work? Yes, you know, if we define VR as related to a device and headset, I would say no. I think I've always been into virtual reality, you know, in some ways. I think literature is virtual reality. And I've done, um, in the 90s, a CD-ROM, which was a virtual building, Residence Color, which was housing all my rooms then, you know. So a first thing cursion into so I think it's not new it's new with this specific technical device but it's not new for me as a as a space can you explain how you prepared for the work and how it might have differed from the the kind of research you might do for a work which doesn't involve this particular technology or did you did you approach it in much the same way well I I always do lots of research so of course part of the research is always about the context, and in that case, the con- context is also, yeah, the device itself and history of VR. So there was some there was some research on the yeah, on very specific elements, but yeah, part is research the way I do it usually, like right. lots of reading. It's also connected to films, experiences, and uh, I think I approached it like. Um, different type of yeah space and display and also a chance to explore abstraction I'm not a painter I'm not you know and but I've been I, I've had abstraction on my mind since a long time and this was a possibility to to yeah look more into that but also all this very interesting connection between um when you know like at the beginning of photography it's connected with spiritism and all these experiments you know like how also um if you if you hybridize a, a a kind of new technology with ideas that seem completely opposite or different the in between there is something very interesting when you say ideas that are opposite or different, what, what do you mean? Well, for example, here, um, one of my inspiration is all the experiences I had with Corinne Sombrin. She's also, she also did the soundscape for that piece, and she works on trance as a cognitive trance, modified state of consciousness mm-hmm. uh, that could be either sound-induced or self-induced, and I found really interesting analogies between virtual space and the space you're in when you're in trance. What I want to say is both are spaces where you have to give up on the space you're used to, you know, your grid of, of references and, and the space in which you move, and you have to retreat into another space where other informations become primary to your experience what's interesting about that is i'm i'm really intrigued when i'm participating in vr about the way my mind somehow separates from my body was that a conscious part of the way that you thought about it yeah that that was for me that's a very interesting aspect so you can connect it to dreaming in a way so your body 
could disappear or not because it depends on the VR experiences, you know, like you can be more scopic, but you could also... But there is this um, sense of a space that is that has the other parameters and in which you move in a different way. And so I, I relied on these trance experiences I had to to try to configure a space with these characteristics I experienced, and which is not easy because it's, you know, very different from a, an architecturally, or it's very, let's say it's even different from the space that we know, the perspective and geometry we know since Renaissance, you know. I'd say it's a break with that space in a way. And it's, it, that's the really interesting thing as well, because we form the space with our movements, don't we? That's, you know, we're, crea- we're creators as well as observers. Yes, we, in the, you know, the same way, like we say in some, you know, scientific experiences, you, you know, you, you, you modify, the, it's, it's, it's the same. So, so you generate, you know, through your gaze, through your movements, through, you, through even your breath, you, you generate the work, you know, like you... But it's also not interaction in a, I'd say, in a heavy sense. You know, it's something more, more organic, more uh, yeah. almost sort of nebulous. So it is it, very often. I was reminded of atmospheric conditions, like um, yeah. real world atmospheric conditions, but almost heightened or given a, because they're coloured so intensely. For instance, in some sequences. Yeah, there is a very climatic you know aspect to it and and i guess some of the references are also you know also there i don't want to say too much about what it is like i want to keep it mysterious you know so i won't spoil it here (laughs) it's very important for me it's like i don't know if you ever experienced the cosmodrome so the cosmodrome uh from 2001 is a is a is a voyage outer space as opposed to this is a inner the endodrome inside is an is an inner journey and they but they both they they have strong similarities you know they're both like immersive environments where you you disconnect from surrounding grid to enter a different space when you approach vr were you interested in because i know how much you think about space and about the body in space and all that. Were you aware of the, the the kind of problematics of the collective experience versus that very individual experience that VR at the moment necessitates? No, totally. In fact, you know, I'm really scared by VR, and I almost worked uh, somehow against VR. Is this work, you know, because I I think what's more scary than a synthetic environment? You know, what's more scary? than spending your time on the screen instead of experiencing biodiversity. So I felt the only way for me to make it meaningful was to reconnect it to some organic aspects through, through these through this trans references, but also to stage it as a collective experience and to... Um, I, when we discussed it with Ralph, I say I don't want to do, you know, phone booths, a series of, you know, it, it's it's too scary, and uh, so I think it's only, you know, it's like I mean, Godard has been practicing this a lot in in many ways. It's only when you're in a kind of sort of resistance with a medium or context that that interesting ideas come out, you know. And I, I think it's not really just by praising a technique, you know. On the opposite, it's also by disliking certain aspects of it. But my curiosity for it, and I think the next step, if I go further in it, would be to see how you can also interact in this space because there are all these possibilities, you know. There was there was no time now. but it's But still, it would be always to... This is why you can also experience it from inside and it, outside, and it's so important, like to visualize this moment of so of this watching people watching something that you don't see, you know, like 
fit in a Casper David Friedrich way. <laughs> it's very important to to keep all these levels, I think, and to yeah, it, it, I think it can be very scary. It can be very scary, but in the moment where we're questioning, you know, like we, people still go on airplanes as if it was normal, but, you know, you also have all this stay grounded movement. And I, I think the next, in this interesting times, you know, as Ralph called them, the next 10 years could be a complete change of many things, you know, like this international art world we've known where people fly from, could be completely questioned. So virtual reality could be, you, you never know, you know. It's an interesting way to end. Thank you very much, Dominic. My pleasure. The Venice Biennale exhibition, May You Live in Interesting Times, which features Dominique's work, opens on the 11th of May and continues until the 24th of November. Law Prevost's French Pavilion and the Climate Change exhibition also close on the same date. You can follow all our news and reviews at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can find at the App Store. There you'll also find a range of subscription options so that you can read our content seamlessly across multiple platforms. And that's it for this week. Do subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already done so, and if you're enjoying it, please give us a rating or review on iTunes because it helps others to find us. You can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio and the Art Newspapers on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, of course. Also, do subscribe to our daily newsletter for all the art world's latest news. Visit theartnewspaper.com and click on the newsletter link at the top right of the page. The Art Newspaper Podcast is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David is also the editor. Thanks to Jane, to Law, to Justin and Lauren, and to Dominique, and thank you for listening. See you next week. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now. <laughs>